0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So just to bring you up to speed, if maybe you weren't here last week or been gone a couple of weeks during the holidays, Easter, we did a series of uh, Easter messages leading up to Easter, Resurrection Sunday, what happened after Easter during the time of Christ on Earth, those 40 days and then the Ascension been several weeks. Uh, And then last week we were blessed by the Rocher family that was here. Uh, Anybody blessed by the Rocher family that was here? That was awesome. So that was a wonderful treat. So now we're getting back to where we left off Boy, over a month ago and that's in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we left off at the end of chapter 6 so we'll resume chapter 7 verse 1. So let's go ahead and look there. This entire chapter (coughs) is about one subject. So it's a long chapter all the way to... uh, Verse 40, Paul deals with, I mean, there's a common theme throughout this chapter. It is connected definitely to chapter 5 and 6. Uh, as I told you, the book of Corinthians could be outlined very simply with just three main points and deals with division uh, and relationships in the first four chapters. And then starting in chapter 5 through 7, even 8, he deals with uh, purity and morality in the church. And so that's where we are right now. We're right in the middle of this section on talking about moral purity in the Christian life and in all of our relationships from a biblical point of view. And uh, the Corinthians were struggling in that regard. So that's the topic at hand, very much related. Six and seven go together. Um, So that's where we're picking up. Chapter seven, uh, Paul does introduce kind of a new specific topic relative to moral purity. And that's why in verse one of chapter seven, he says, now concerning. So that's a transitional phrase he uses all throughout the book of Corinthians when he wants to kind of go on to a new topic. Um, it's a formal transition now concerning so he's letting us know okay we're about to deal with something uh, more specific and a little different but yet related to what he was just talking about still talking about morality but now in a different context Uh, as a matter of fact first seven verses are about the marriage relationship Uh, husband and wife and how they should relate to one another in terms of physical intimacy and then he talks a lot about uh, singleness and your options if you're a single person for the rest of the chapter so any so there's something for everybody here in chapter seven as we go through whether you're married about to get married you're engaged you're divorced separated your husband or wife has died that's also in this chapter um and if you're single and desire to be married or if you're single and you're content in your singleness the rest of your life paul covers it all actually the holy spirit of god covers all of that so you are somewhere in this chapter be very helpful very practical and we'll see what God's message is for every one of us, depending upon what phase or stage we are in life. Um, with that, let's go ahead. I want to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, because that is kind of one paragraph. It all goes together. It's very tightly knit. So we're want to. we only looking at verse 1 today, but we want to see it in its context. That's why we want to read all the way up to verse 7. So follow along as I read, uh, starting at verse 1. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again as husband and wife so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men or all people or all Christians really were even as I myself am. However, each Christian or man, has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Now, if you've never read this passage before, or if you're a relatively new Christian, or you're just not really paying attention to the context, and you read this passage, it's very common to come away scratching your head thinking, what in the world is Paul talking about? When actually verses 1-7 through seven is the most direct in some ways, the most explicit passage in the entire Bible on sexual intimacy. Yet the interesting thing is there was a word that you didn't see the entire time we were reading it, and that was the word sex or sexual intimacy. Paul never used that word, at least it's not translated that way in our English Bible. That's the first point that I want to make. We are talking, and I talked about this back in chapter 5 when we were dealing with incest, a sensitive topic, and then I mentioned it a little bit in chapter 6 when we talked about uh, sexual or moral purity and immorality and that uh, what our perspective and attitude and approach needs to be regarding this very sensitive topic of sexuality or personal intimacy. I'm going to use that as a synonym. And one thing that Christians need to do and get in their brain is follow the model of the biblical authors when it comes to to sex or sexual pure or sexual uh, relations, and that is how we talk about it, how we communicate about it. Like I said, notice Paul did not use the word the three-letter word that we use here in America, sex. He he couched this idea of sexual intimacy or personal intimate intimacy in euphemistic terms, couching it really in sacred, wholesome terminology It reminds us and lets us know that this sexual intimacy is very precious it is a gift from god it is very serious uh, It has a tremendous impact on individuals in many ways in any many dimensions but it's a gift from god he gave it he monitors it he holds us accountable for it it has a spiritual component as a living metaphor that we're going to talk about to it, So it's highly important to God, and as a result, because it is so sacred, virtually all the biblical authors, whenever it is addressed, it is addressed, addressed directly, but always in these sacred terms, euphemisms. And so that's how I would like to approach it for the most part. And so when I talk about it, I'm going to be talking about what's it. Sexual intimacy is what I'm talking about. There's a couple of ways we could do it, but on your handout there, I put uh, physical intimacy or Personal physical intimacy, that's what I'm referring to. Sex just seems, that word seems so crass. And without personal relationship. Not representing wholly the biblical viewpoint on this. So I call it personal physical intimacy. And the acronym I gave it was PPI that helps us moving along personal physical intimacy but i just think that's a wonderful model that paul lays down there he is talking about sexual intimacy that is explicit between husband and wife and he uses all these euphemisms and he's very clear at the same time as we go through the passage so you need to understand this section here is talking about sexual intimacy verses one through seven we're going to just deal with verse one like i said let's go ahead and do that um So I take verse 1 and that's Roman numeral number 1 and then there are some corollary truths that need to complement that and fill that out and that's Roman numeral number 2 and Roman numeral number 3. I am not promising we're going to get through all of this today. We don't need to. This is a long chapter and it needs to be done thoroughly and appropriately and um, every one of us is made in God's image as sexual beings and therefore this topic is relevant to everybody here even if you're in 7th grade, 8th grade or whatever. You are a sexual being made in God's image, and you will grow, you will mature, you have a sexual identity that you need to identify with from God's point of view, and honor Him with that, and the Bible helps us do that. So let's go ahead and look at it. So first thing I want to do is look at verse 1, and let's talk about that. Paul transitions from chapter 6, and he says, now concerning. Okay, I'm going to bring up a related topic, but a new topic. Now That's why he says, now concerning. And he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. We talked earlier that Paul had been corresponding back and forth with the Corinthians. We call this First Corinthians, but this is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We know that because he's already referred to another letter that he had written them. So, I mean, this could be 2nd, 3rd, 5th Corinthians for all we know. Because Paul was their pastor for a year and a half. He planted the church. He went away. He's been gone for almost two to three years now. Hundreds of miles away. And so they're corresponding. Uh, much of their correspondence is through written mail and letters and so Paul had written them and then they had also written him back so there was definitely a previous letter that the Corinthians had written the Apostle Paul about various topics seeking clarification talking maybe about some of the problems in their church and so that's why he says now concerning the things about which you wrote so he's acknowledging hey I got your letter Uh, I read it and he's addressed some of those things already and now there was apparently an issue that they had raised in that letter they wrote Paul when they started apparently either asking questions or they're making statements or assertions about sexuality, about personal intimacy, and about abstinence or being celibate. And we don't know exactly what they said in that letter about that topic, but Paul gives us a hint at least of maybe one sentence that stood out in Paul's mind in terms of that represents their thinking. So Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote me in the previous letter that I got from you, and then he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, more than likely when when he says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that Paul is quoting what the Corinthians wrote him. That was a quote from the letter. That was a position that they had. That was a statement that they made. That was a belief that they had that they put in the letter. And so now he wants to address that. So you wrote me a letter. I got your letter and all the topics that we talked about. And one of the topics you brought up was abstinence. And as a matter of fact, in the letter, you said it is good for a man not to touch a woman that was probably what was in their letter. Now Paul, the rest of this chapter actually is a corrective to the sentence they wrote Paul in their letter. In other words, he's saying you made a statement and you know you're you're off base. Your your thinking is tweaked. Somebody's influencing you wrong. I don't know if it's false teachers there, uh an untrained Sunday school teacher you had, uh experience from your previous life as an unbeliever, but whatever it is, they had wrong thinking about this issue. That is that in the statement, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So he's going to correct that thinking immediately. need to explain what this means. Uh, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So before we interpret the verse, we've got to translate it correctly. The Apostle Paul wrote uh, 1 Corinthians in Greek. And so we have Greek manuscripts today. We have a Greek Bible. So we can actually go back to the Greek text and read literally what the original Greek language was. That's why it is so important, I think, for a, a serious Bible teacher or preacher to know the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and that's why seminaries historically train men, or whatever Bible teacher is going to be, in Greek and in Hebrew, not just men. We offered a Greek class here a couple years ago and invited everybody in the church, and we had ladies in there too. And the better you know the original language of the New Testament, the clearer your understanding is going to be as you read the New Testament. Because by rule of thumb, when you have to translate from one language to another language, there are nuances and sometimes even meaning that is lost in translation. There are some words in Greek that you can't translate into English. There's just no way to do it. In an identical, synonymous manner that does it justice. And so it is very important and a priority when studying the Bible, teaching the Bible, preaching the Bible, wanting to understand it in all of its nuances that somebody needs to know the original language and that is Greek. And I have studied Greek and I Every single week I read my New Testament in Greek as I'm preparing, but I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm a student of Greek and have been for 25 years. I am dependent upon Greek scholars, and that's all my commentaries who are reliable, gifted scholars of the New Testament who have given their whole life to knowing the Word of God and mastering the original language. And I am blessed as a result. And so point number one, before you can give a correct interpretation of Scripture, you have to have a correct translation of Scripture. And that's why, I mean, sometimes critics of Christianity will ask, well, how come you Christians got so many different translations of the Bible? You guys can't get it straight. You can't agree. You got the King James, the New King James, the Living Bible, and the New Living Bible, and the New American Standard, and the New, New American Standard, and the NIV, and the New uh, NIV, and the New King James, and the ESV, and blah, 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 and just on and on and on. There's this proliferation of translations of the English Bible today like never before. And to critics or skeptics or cynics who look from abroad, they look at that and think, man, you guys are confused. You can't even get it right. You don't even know what your own Bible says. And you keep changing the meaning all the time. That's a very common uh, criticism of Christianity. Well, just because we have all these translations doesn't mean we're confused or that we can't get it right. Uh, the reason we have so many different English translations and we will continue to have ongoing new English translations is because language changes with time. That's all there is to it. Language is living. There are words we use today that meant something totally different 10 years ago, 30 years ago, that doesn't mean the same thing today. Ooh, that car, that was bad. So that was bad, so that, wait, so that means it was good? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was good. Bad means good. Oh, bad means good? Because I'm talking to a junior higher? That's one example. So bad used to mean bad, but today bad sometimes can mean good. Isn't that amazing? That's really helpful. Thank you for messing up the English language. Appreciate it. And so the English language, it is living. Actually, all languages that are spoken are living and morphing and changing and nuancing, and that's the main answer. Why do we have so many English translations all the time? That's why. We are trying to put the biblical language, in the language of the people so they can understand God's Word in their culture, in their time, in their context as best as they possibly can. So for years, 1611 was the first universally recognized English translation of the entire Bible. 1611, the King James Bible. And it stood the test of time for centuries, even all the way up today. It's a highly popular translation, the 1611 translation of the King James Bible in English. But here it is 500 years, 400 years later. And there's many of the words in the King James Bible we don't use today. If we saw it, we wouldn't recognize it. Um, We don't speak that way. We're here in America. It's 400 years later. Some things have changed. And as a result, that's why in the 20th century, we began to have updated translations of the Bible in English so we can understand better. And so the New American Standard Bible came along and that was helpful. And then... In 1979, the NIV came along, which was not word for word, but kind of word for word, phrase for phrase, and then the ESV uh, most recently as well, and then even the NIV has been changed a couple of times. So, But as you c- get new translations, we've got to make sure before we do the interpretation, are they correct in everything that they say? And Unfortunately, the NIV that was uh, translated in 1979, it was released, the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, uh, was good in many areas, excellent on some portions of the Old Testament, and then uh, they made some boo-boos or errors that they actually recognized, came back and tried to fix. But this is probably the biggest blunder in the new international version is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Um, and that's what I put there in the notes for you because the NIV is a very popular Bible. It was the Bible that I was given as a brand-new Christian in the 80s. And I, I used it for 10-plus years. I did all my memorization as an early Christian in the NIV. So today, if John, uh, Romans 3.23, boom, I'm going to spit out probably an NIV translation. So it's a very popular Bible. It's one of the most popular Bibles in America. And so that's why this is so vitally important to address. Uh, Do we have the correct translation on 1 Corinthians 7.1? And I would say the NIV, this is the biggest mistake they made in their translation. Let's look at it. And you'll see the implications of why it is actually horrific. The correct translation of 1 Corinthians 7.1 is, and this is from the New American Standard Bible. Some of you might have this correct translation in a different translation. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman that's that's a literal translation that is what the Greek text says. Anthropos is the man for or the word for man, the word woman there, and not to touch, not to touch that is the literal translation now that that phrase not to touch is used that comes from the old testament that was a phrase, a euphemistic phrase that literally refers to sexual intercourse. That's what it means. Uh, I think it was even used by Plato and Aristotle in some of their writings, exact same phrase in the Greek language. So it's a euphemistic phrase referring to sexual intercourse is what it means. Whether you're married or not. So if you wanted to understand this verse in light of that, That's how you should understand it, going back and reading it that way. Now concerning the things about which you Corinthians wrote to me when you said, it is good for a man not to have sexual intercourse with a woman. So that was the Corinthians' position. At least an influential group in the Corinthian congregation decided, now that we're Christians, it is good for a man not to have sexual intercourse with a woman. And they were pretty proud of that. And they were kind of spiritually proud about it. And Paul says, oops, um, you don't fully understand the biblical view of sexuality. If that's the conclusion you've come to, that's not proper. But that's what, so to touch a woman means to have physical relations with a woman. Now the NIV, here's where I said no, bad translation. So if you have an NIV right now that's either a 1979 or a 1984 translation, you don't need to be embarrassed and hide your Bible right now so the person sitting next to you uh, knows you have an NIV the NIV is not banned at Grace Bible Fellowship. You just, you just can't become a member. But it's not banned <laughs> from the, No, I'm just kidding. I believe the NIV actually had the latest translation in 2011. And they actually fixed this, which is good. So maybe you have an NIV 2011, then you're good on this verse. But if you've got 1979 or 84, those are the most popular and highly distributed. This is what it says. Uh, now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to marry... Ouch. That is horrible. That is a horrible translation. That is detrimental. That is dangerous. That is destructive. And highly misleading. We need to correct that. It needs to be addressed. Um, For the NIV to say it is good for a man not to marry. You could read this passage and think, oh, um, getting married is bad. Or the converse is more true. Remaining celibate the rest of your life as a Christian is the most spiritual thing you can do to please God. Marriage is down here in approval of God. Celibacy is up here. God is more pleased with celibacy. That's the implication, clearly, from that kind of statement. That's why it is so dangerous, so destructive that literally undermines the precious, sacred institution of marriage that God created before he created the nation of Israel and before he created the church. So if at all in your past you've been influenced by the thinking that remaining celibate for life, or even if you're celibate now and you want to get married someday, but if you're celibate now and you think, ooh, I'm being spiritual or God wants me to be spiritual before I get married by being celibate, uh, get that thinking out of your mind. Being celibate is not spiritual any more than being married. And we know that clearly from... Go to Genesis chapter 2, because we need to read this. Chapter 1, God makes Adam and Eve. first thing He tells them is be fruitful and multiply. Which means he, God told them, get married, be husband and wife, replenish the earth, procreate, have physical intimacy in an ongoing manner. And when God did that in Genesis chapter 1, after He created Adam and Eve and told them to be married and to have physical intimacy and to procreate and to enjoy one another physically and in intimacy in chapter 1, when He was done creating and declaring that, He said, and it is very good. Marriage is very good as God created it. That's what verse 31 says of chapter 1. So that is God's view of marriage. If God one of the ideal to be celibacy, we would probably have that reflected in Genesis chapter 1. And God bade Adam and Eve, the first two human beings. And God told Adam, if you want to really be spiritual, remain celibate. And do not touch that good-looking woman over there, Eve. Eve, same with you if you want to be really spiritual. Remain celibate. And by the way, you will be the last two human beings on planet Earth. (laughs) Then you will go into non-existence. Then I'll be left with the animals. But anyway, God didn't say that now we know that sin entered the world in genesis chapter 3 with the disobedience of adam and eve and then the 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 earth incurred a curse from god god cursed the earth god cursed the human race that's chapter 3 in chapter 2 sin has not yet entered the world and polluted the world in genesis chapter 2 the world is still very good so Genesis one thirty one still applies to all of chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, God just goes into more detail about this, Adam, this first man, this first woman, how he created them, and how he performed the first wedding, the first marriage that took place. And God made Adam from the dust of the earth, and then God uh, put Adam to sleep, and then he took out a rib, and he made the first woman. that would be the perfect complement, and even with the same DNA, but to perfectly complement Adam. And so the first couple, Adam and Eve, and God performed the first wedding first marriage of Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth from chapter one. And then in chapter two, he says it in a different way. And their wedding is described in Genesis two, 22 to 25, but before they are formally wed together in verse 18 of Genesis chapter two, this is absolutely key. Remember, there is no sin in the world. Humans are not fallen. Humans are not sinful at this point. The only human actually that exists is Adam. He is very good. He is without sin. He doesn't have a sin nature. He is pleasing to God. And then in Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for Adam the man. It is not good. In Genesis, God kept cre- he'd create and say, And it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then after He created on the sixth day, He said, And it was very good. This is in stark contrast to Genesis 2.18, where sin hasn't even entered the world yet, where the, for the first time, God says, This is not good. What is not good? That man should be by himself. That he would not have a wife. This is amazing. It is, this is not good for a man to be celibate if he doesn't have the gift. This is not good for a man to not have a wife by God's design. And this is even before sin entered into the world. This is not good. What is God saying? Well, the converse of that statement is that marriage is good. Marriage is a blessed thing. Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is the ideal from God for all of humanity. Celibacy is the exception. Paul confirms that in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll see it. But what is not good? For the man to be alone. For Adam to be left by himself celibate without a compliment, without a partner, and without physical intimacy and friendship at every level. It is not good. God knew it wasn't good. This is not, it is not good for the man to be alone. In other words, marriage is good. Marriage is the perfect compliment and gift from God. As a result, I will make him a helper suitable for him. I'm going to make him the perfect compliment. And that would be a woman, a wife. So if you go back to the NIV translation of 1 Corinthians 7.1, you get the impression that, oh, marriage is bad. And, the, and God said in Genesis 2.18, no, singleness is bad if you don't have the gift of singleness. You conclude, conclude in uh, the NIV, 1 Corinthians 7.1, that celibacy for life is good. But Genesis 2.18 says, no, celibacy for life, if you don't have the gift, is bad. That's why this is so important. It's a blessed thing. Then God performs that wonderful first marriage of Adam and Eve. And then He tells Him, blesses it. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. And he will be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It was a san- uh, sanctioned by Almighty God Himself. Now go to Proverbs 18.22 which is another great verse that talks about the sacredness and the blessedness of marriage intended by God to be a gift to humanity. Marriage is supposed to be the norm. Again, singleness is the exception. And Paul is going to give us more details about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, The book of Proverbs is just filled with all kinds of statements and truths about uh, physical intimacy, singleness, marriage, immorality all of the above and here's uh, I just love this verse Proverbs 18:22 He the man by the way this is a man who knows the Lord this is a believer in our new testament we call this is a Christian Christian man He who finds a wife she wasn't lost but he was looking The man is looking he's got his eyes up he is praying he's praying to God. He's asking for God's leading and God's wisdom and looking for godly candidates and God send me my perfect compliment. Send me my gift that you intend for me. Just like Abraham was searching and deliberate and prayerful and trying to find the perfect godly spouse for his son. He who finds a wife So if you're single, a single man and you, have, you think you have the desire to be married or the gift of marriage and right now you don't have a candidate? Well, what are you doing? Are you searching? Are you praying? Are you being deliberate? Are you being proactive? The most important place to be proactive is in God's will. Priority number one, right? Submitting to him, obeying to him, being content in him, praying to him, asking from him. And as you're going along in his will, Lord willing, he's going to bring the perfect compliment who's going to be side by side with you as you are both in God's will together. And as a result, you complement one another and Many times that means patience. Just wait on the Lord. But be deliberate. Be aggressive in your prayer life. Look in the right places where other godly, complimentary candidates would be. But you've got to be proactive. You can't sit around on the couch watching video games, never getting out of the house or spending any time thinking, God, bring me a wife. So surround yourself. Always try to entrench yourself in Christian community wherever you can. But it's proactive. He who finds a wife, that's the idea. He who finds a wife, and it's the man that's the initiator. It's another thing. Uh, he who finds a wife, the idea here is a believing wife, because that's God's will. So the, for us today, it would be a Christian single man who finds a Christian single godly woman who becomes his partner in marriage, finds a good thing. Isn't that awesome? He who finds a wife finds a good thing christian marriage is a blessed thing it's supposed to be christian marriage is an exciting thing it is favored from god when two young people or two older people that are believers decide to then they believe after prayer and laying it before the lord that god has brought us together this is a thing to be celebrated if they know the lord it's clear he who finds a wife that's reason to celebrate this is a blessing from god He who finds a wife finds a good thing in the second half of the verse and obtains favor from Yahweh. The Lord is Yahweh. That is God's very personal name. Your provider, your father, the one that cares for you, the covenant keeper. And he creates the covenant of marriage just for you on a very personal, intimate level. Great verse. And obtains favor from the Lord. Now, in our day and age, it could be, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, but gets backlash from friends. Or resistance from family. Or thumbs down from the culture. Because the world, that's their attitude about marriage a lot of times and commitment. Well, who cares what all of them think if you are in God's will? Because it says, and obtains favor from the Lord. Isn't that the most important? When you have a clear conscience knowing I am in God's will. I am a believer. I love God. And the person that he brought into my life is the gift from God to me. And marriage is a good thing. That's why I love this verse so much. But the point is, is that verse in Proverbs is very categorically clear that celibacy is not better than marriage. And marriage is not bad. Marriage is not a weakness. Marriage is not less spiritual. Lifelong celibacy is not more spiritual. So I think we got the translation correct. So with that in mind, and having the proper translation, that now concerning the things about which you wrote, you Corinthians, when you wrote me and you said it is good for a man not to touch a woman or have sexual relations with a woman, ooh, we need to correct that. And I'm going to go on for 39 verses correcting your wrong view. And fix your view of personal intimacy. So that takes us to Roman numeral number two. Let's go ahead and look at it. So I got A through F there. These are Kind of corollary, untrue, very popular, highly disseminated thoughts about sexuality and personal intimacy that are perpetuated in the church, among believers, throughout history, and in the world. These are the most popular ones A through F. So make sure on Roman numeral number two, if you're taking notes in your bulletin and you put this in your Bible and You forget about it. Ten years later you pull it out. Remember that point number two, these are bad things, not good things. Okay? These are wrong. That's why I said the correct, I mean the corrupt interpretation. These we don't believe in these things, points A through F. These are bad. They are unbiblical. Let's look at them. Point A. It is more this is what people frequently believe. Actually, there was a Bible study that I was privy to that I was responsible for. For in terms of oversight at one time where the group was going through first corinthians and got to chapter seven verse one and somebody had an niv and this was kind of the topic at hand and the discussion was yeah celibacy is a higher calling it's more spiritual i'm thinking mm, and i caught wind of that no that's wrong that's dangerous yikes reject that so letter a wrong view number one it is more spiritual to be celibate for life than to marry A lot of Christians believe that. That's been a false teaching all throughout church history. And it poisoned and infiltrated the church pretty early on in the church. Listen to this. Some of the church fathers that had this weird, distorted, unbiblical view of sexual intimacy. Some of these were church fathers that we respect. These are church fathers that said good things about other topics, but here they got it wrong, at least on this topic. Clement of Alexandria, Origen, by the way, he got most things wrong, Um, and even St. Augustine said some wrong things about sexual intimacy probably as a result result of his hermeneutic, but also probably because of his past life where he struggled. Came out with a warped view of sexuality. Augustine's a good parallel to the Corinthians because in the Corinthian culture, it was just this proliferation of sexual immorality, you know, just gone wild. Just sexual immorality everywhere. It was even in their religious temples. It was public. It was on the street. It was on their billboards. It was worse than Las Vegas. That was the culture of Corinth, of pagan Corinth. So that's how people were born and raised. Just utter, gross license. Human beings were just biological animals. And also they incorporated that promiscuity and proliferation of sexual immorality into their religion. It was ingrained in them. So many of these Corinthians who grew up in this just proliferation of sexual immorality maybe for decades, and then they hear the gospel and then they get saved and they're radically born again. And then all of a sudden they have the mind of Christ and the Holy Spirit and maybe some revelation from Paul in the Scriptures and they realize, wow, wow, as a pagan, I totally under, misunderstood the gift of uh, personal intimacy and sexual intimacy. And I had a warped view of it and I, uh, a perverted view of it. And I engaged in gross immorality and sin for decades of my life. And they're overcome with their sin and their guilt. Because now they're a Christian. And so they were way over here in terms of license and gross immorality. They become a Christian and then they swing way over here in the pendulum to almost a hyper-extreme To the point that sexual sexual intimacy is bad in any form. If you really want to be spiritual, then you should totally abstain from sexual intercourse. That is definitely what some of the Corinthians believe. They went from one extreme to another. You know that happens to us today? It happens all the time. Somebody grows up and they're a total pagan and they're, uh, they're into totally rock music and marijuana and everything else that goes with it. And then they get radically saved maybe when they're 25 or 32 And they see this radical transformation, and God's made them a new creature, and they look back at their life, and they feel all this guilt, and they were into all the rock and roll and sex and drugs and whatever else, and now that they're a Christian, they are so overwhelmed with guilt, and their conscience is so sensitive that they go to the other extreme and think anything having to do in terms of music that has a beat of a drum is evil and of the devil, because it reminds them of their previous life. So they swing way over to the other extreme. To the point that all music is bad or all electric guitars are bad or all drums are bad. That's just one example. It's not just music. It could be movies or entertainment or just about any gray area. You could swing from one extreme to the other. And that's what the Corinthians had done, many of them. They got saved, became Christians, and, and realized, wow, how yucky, disgusting. I want nothing to do with sexuality the rest of my life. I want to just be pure and serve god and love him now the problem was some of these christians were married and if they were to take a vow valib- of celibacy and remain married then they were depriving their spouse they even thought that sexual intimacy within marriage was dirty and unclean and impure and that's what, that is what paul wants to correct now this idea that celibacy is more spiritual and more biblical and that it pleases god more than marriage has plagued the church for two thousand years and i just want to give you a couple examples Uh, One of the first ones who was a highly respected church father early in the church who had this distorted, wrong, hyper, overreactive view of sexual intimacy was Clement of Alexandria. So listen to this. In the second century, Clement of Alexandria allowed, he allowed, he was a bishop. He had authority over the church and the people. Kind of ruled somewhat with an iron hand over people who call themselves Christians in his jurisdiction. You will do what I tell you to do because I am the bishop of this congregation. Clement of Alexandria, get this, allowed, unenjoyed and procreative sex. So you could have sexual intimacy as long as you didn't enjoy it with your spouse. I am not kidding. That's what he wrote and said. Because sexual intimacy was not for enjoying. It was for one purpose. It was for simply procreation. There are Christians who believe that today. I, I have a friend who believes that. And I've talked to him about it. Do you really believe this? Yes. And he quoted the church fathers to me. Showed me the passages. like, wow. Okay. And then they quote from Genesis 1, 27 and following. where It just simply says, uh, God created Adam and Eve, or the first man and woman. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. That's it. it he didn't say enjoy it. Just be fruitful and multiply. There it is. The only purpose for sexual intimacy is procreation. That is their argument. And that was the thinking of Clement of Alexandria. So Clement of Alexandria, the Christian bishop and pastor, allowed his congregants who were married, he allowed them unenjoyed and procreative sex. And get this, only during 12 hours out of the 24-hour day. It had to be at nighttime. Then this developed and got worse in the Middle Ages. But by the Middle Ages, preposterous as it now seems, the church, the church universal, and this is primarily talking about the Catholic church, the church forbade sexual intimacy between a married couple 40 days before the important festival of Christmas. So 40 days before Christmas, okay, married couple, you need to abstain from one another until Christmas. 40 days. And then also you have to abstain 40 days before Christmas and eight days after the more important festival of Easter. You had to abstain eight days after Pentecost. You had to abstain uh, the eves of feast days. You had to abstain on Sundays in honor of the resurrection. You had to abstain on Wednesdays to call to mind the beginning of Lent. You had to abstain on Fridays in memory of the crucifixion. You had to uh, abstain during pregnancy and 30 days after birth, 40 if the child is a male, and during menstruation you had to abstain, and then five days before communion you had to abstain grand total this all adds up to 252 excluded days throughout the year where you had to abstain not counting feast days that's more days and if there were 30 of those a guess which may in fact be on the conservative side so that's 282 days of abstaining there would then have been 83 remaining days in the year when provided of course that the woman did not happen to be menstruating or she wasn't pregnant or in postnatal period and provided that they intended only pro- creation and not enjoying it and provided that they weren't mad at each other then couples could with the permission of the church have indulged in but not enjoyed sexual intercourse wow that's an actual view of sexuality in church history and they give an example origin wrote on it as well said the same thing he, he he just couldn't stand reading the book of the song of solomon in the bible because of how graphic it is between this man and this woman who are just gushy, gushy all over each other. So he couldn't handle that, and he was so embarrassed and ashamed, and he, he had the wrong view of sin. So he castrated himself. Thought that was the most spiritual thing to do. Because he took Jesus' words literally. That if you want to be a eunuch, then deal with it. And so he, Jesus was being metaphorical. If it causes you to sin, cut it off. He took it literally. It, but his hermeneutic was not literal, it was allegorical. So he couldn't handle Song of Solomons literally, so he totally turned it into allegory. And it's, it's not a man and a woman enjoying marital bliss and intimacy. It's actually a book about the relationship of the church to Jesus. And that's where that comes from, from origin. And a lot of churches believe that today. That's not true. Song of Solomon is about a man and a woman who are married and blessed by God in that very graphic, intimate book. Because... Sexual intimacy as given by God in the context of marriage is a gift and a blessed thing from God. And so I already talked about Augustine as well. So with that, this idea that celibacy is more spiritual than marriage has plagued the church, and it still does to this very day. I want to close this part. We'll pick this up uh, next week as we just keep plugging along through 1 Corinthians 7. We'll have children's church next week too. So that the little kitties, parents, if you want to send them there, uh, they'll have that option. But let's close with 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, Timothy is in the T section of Paul's epistles, Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul was single when he wrote 1 Corinthians, but it could be that he was married at one point. Maybe his wife died. We don't know. So Paul was not opposed to marriage. But here's what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4 as he is carried about by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul said, but the Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the latter days, in latter times, later on in history, later on in history, and that did happen later on in history, church history, the Middle Ages, and even today. This prophecy is being fulfilled as we are here. The Holy Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, Later on, some will fall away from the faith. Some will profess to be Christians. They will profess to be Bible teachers. They will profess to be pastors and bishops and archbishops and religious and believing in God and claiming the name of Jesus and calling the Scriptures sacred. But they will get off track. They'll get off the rails. They will lead people astray with wrong teaching is what he's getting at here. Then he just and it could be wrong teaching in a lot of different areas, but he just chooses a couple of examples. For example, these false teachers will say the following in a religious context. Well, what are the deceptive, unbiblical things that these so-called religious teachers will teach? Some are going to fall away from the faith. Believers are going to fall away from the faith or be misled, paying attention to get this deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, Professing Christians and maybe even real Christians are going to be deceived, led astray by false teachers. And the false teachers actually are inspired and led by demons and Satan himself. That's scary. Well, what are these doctrines they're teaching? It must be uh, devil worship and weird, crazy things. No, not devil worship. They actually couch it in kind of religious, spiritual terminology, sometimes even borrowing or stealing biblical jargon to couch it in, which makes it all the more deceptive and misleading. But it is driven, its core, the origin of it is from Satan and the pit of hell itself. That's what it says right here. It's categorical. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines. What are these demonic doctrines? Well, by means of the hypocrisy of liars. See, these are the false teachers. And they can teach false doctrine without batting an eyelash. They can teach... False doctrine, enthusiastically and dogmatically. You know why? Because their conscience is seared. That's what it says. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. And then verse 3, he tells us what a couple of these false doctrines are. That are demonic. Well, what are they? Men who forbid marriage. There it is. When people come along in religious terminology, so-called religious teachers, and they start preaching and talking about celibacy and abstinence in terms of lifelong celibacy being more spiritual than marriage, that is wrong, that is unbiblical and according to Paul, that is demonic. That is demonic. It's a wrong view of sexuality. It's a distorted view of one of the greatest gifts that God has given humanity to a married couple. So if you're married, you don't need to feel guilty that, oh, I'm not spiritual because I'm married. So he's specifically talking about those who would teach as a voice of God that supposedly marriage is bad or marriage is less spiritual than celibacy. That is demonic. That is wrong. You can find it in all kinds of religious beliefs and worldviews today and all throughout history. I'll never forget when I took a class in sociology and it was called uh, Cults and uh, Religions of the World when I was a sophomore, no, at the end of my freshman year in college from Dr. Ron Enroth. Who, just a world-class expert on cults and false religions, he made a statement one day I'll never forget. He said, one of the marks of a false religion or false worldview is always a distorted, perverted view of sexuality. Always. Whether it's Islam that allows men in the Quran to marry more than one woman, which is polygamy, or Mormonism, the same thing, and on and on. You can just t- pick your worldview and pick your religion. I guarantee somewhere they've got a distorted view of sex as God intended it. And here's an example. And it doesn't come from just humanity. It comes from Satan himself. Which only makes sense. Satan wants to destroy people. That's his name. He is the destroyer. And Satan knows. Every human being was made in God's image as a sexual being. Satan knows, because he's smart and wise, that the sexual drive is one of the most strong, impulsive, passionate desires that humans have where they are most susceptible, most vulnerable. And if I want to trip them up and get them to fall into sin or gross immorality or go away from God or violate their conscience, I'm going to attack in this area. And I will make it as deceiving as I possibly can, so I'm going to garb it in religious terms. Hey, maybe I'll even get it in the church by a so-called Christian Bible teacher. Those are the wiles of the devil. Men who forbid marriage and then also who advocate abstaining from food. Certain kinds of food. You can't eat meat. You can't eat this. You can't. Jesus already said, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Everything I've given you is good. Eat the bacon. It has been made holy. So when somebody comes along and tries to tell you, well, to be really spiritual, you need to abstain from pork and meat and this and red meat and blah, 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 blah. That is a doctrine of Satan himself. Because you can't earn the favor of God by what food you eat. So all, And then Paul goes on, says they've turned it on its ear, totally deceptive. They have, a, they have undermined God as the blessed, diverse creator who wants to bless his creation with the diversity of wonderful gifts that he gives them, including sex within the confines of marriage and also all the menu and the plethora of options we have to eat. And that's why he says in verse 3, These false teachers advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Gratefully shared in. Why do we pray before we eat? Because it's right here in the Bible. God, thank you for this food. Thank you for this Mother's Day Kentucky Fried Chicken food I'm about to eat. And look what God does to that coleslaw and that chicken in verse 4. For everything created by God, well, a chicken was created by God, God made it, we kill it. Everything created by God is good. In other words, it's good to eat. You have the blessing of God. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. That's why we pray before we eat. That's not a superfluous, repetitive, mundane, meaningless prayer. Every time in the Gospels that Jesus ate something, He prayed every single time and He thanked the Father for the provision. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Get this. This is amazing. There's a supernatural transaction we can't see that actually takes place in verse 5. For the food you're about to eat is sanctified somehow. Whatever that means. It doesn't mean God instantly says the calories will not affect your waistline. That's not what he's talking about. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Isn't that awesome? So the at the core of this demonic false teaching, the key word there is abstaining in verse 3. Abstaining, abstaining. If you think that you can get to God, earn His forgiveness, earn His pleasure, get a higher standing spiritually by abstaining from anything, you're wrong. That's human's, human works. I will abstain from this. I will abstain from that. I will abstain from chocolate for 14 days. I will abstain from this for 15 days. And maybe God will like me more. No, I'm not abstaining from chocolate for 14 days. It is good. All things in moderation, says Paul. The blessed gift from God. So we're going to pick up next week. So this week, hey, just some practical thoughts. Uh, enjoy the gifts that God has given. If you're married, enjoy the gift of marriage. Enjoy the gift of personal intimacy with your spouse. Uh, if you want to be married someday, keep praying to God and, and ask Him to provide for you and keep you under self-control and content until then and give you wisdom moving into the future. Uh, and when you have, meet with your family today, uh, have somebody pray and remember this wonderful prayer in First Timothy four of how God has made all things good for us to enjoy because he is a gracious giver who loves his people and in the end give him the glory for it all with that let's go ahead and pray father we thank you for our time together to worship with the saints on a special day lord a unique day in terms of mother's day and thank you for that great reminder and God also thank you for your word the passages we read today being 2,000 years old and amazingly are so relevant to us today as beings made in your image, um, beings who have the institution of marriage still, food that we have to live on from day to day that comes from your gracious hand, God, remind us to continue to be thankful to you for all of your great provisions and that you would receive the glory as a result. We pray in Christ's name, amen.